Welcome to the Hansa Conversations, where we discuss some ideas behind the Hansa therapeutic philosophy and other ideas around therapy, movement, and yoga practices as they relate to life in general. We welcome you, and we hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, welcome everybody to Hansa Conversations. I am Vincent Boleta, I'm the founder of Hansa. And today I have a good friend of mine, Susan Allen, who I know quite well from many years back. Uh, welcome, Susan, to Hansa Conversations. Hi, Vincent. Nice to be here. Great. Now, I'd like Susan to introduce herself. Um, this particular podcast, we're looking at meditation as a one goal, one particular process of developing greater levels of self-awareness and understanding. Uh, so uh, let's start. So Susan, uh, let's tell the listeners something about you. Hi. Well, uh, yeah, so I'm living down here in a beautiful mountain town called Wanaka down in the South Island of New Zealand. And yeah, I've been practicing yoga and meditation for, I reckon, over half my life now, being the age I am. And yeah, it's a really important part of my life from many angles, from a passion, something that I do for myself, as well as, you know, working as a yoga and meditation teacher. That, uh, you know, it's a big part of being in this community. And, uh, yeah, that's a really wonderful, um, it's a wonderful way to enter into a community and become part of it. Great. Yeah, and I've been... um, yeah, over the years, been lucky to study with lots of wonderful teachers and have had a very, ex- what I consider, explorative uh, journey in that regard so far. Um, yeah, always been quite curious to see what different people are doing and, you know, f- through all of that, find my own little take on, on the practice and, yeah, and on the lifestyle and for how it changed, how how it's changed and influenced my life and direction. So yeah, it's uh, it's wonderful to be here sharing some of this with you, Vincent. Great. And so what 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 elements do you incorporate into your meditation? And so there's two questions here. And then how has it changed your life? Wow. Well, that's a a pretty big um topic. Got time, Susan. Got time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, in terms of um, meditation, well, well, I've been teaching yoga for about 20 years and I, and I came to yoga through meditation. I was practicing meditation as a teenager in a, yeah, in a very unstructured and sort of untaught way. I think maybe like, like most people or many people in the world have practiced meditation without knowing it. Um, you know, a natural uh, skill of being present um, in some situations that, you know, spontaneous arising of, you know, simplicity. And and from that, uh, always had an interest in, in sort of investigating, you know, what that, what those moments were and being able to find what later led me to actual practices that, uh, you know, obviously as a young kid I wasn't um, aware of and definitely didn't grow up in a, in a culture or a family 
or a community that, that fostered such things as meditation or even made them available or even, you know, any language around it. So I, yeah, when I was a, a teenager and I was doing a bit of traveling, I came across a few schools teaching meditation and they were, you know, very varied in terms of the actual practice that they were taught, that they were teaching and were, you know, across all different modalities and, you know, from full sort of hippie style relaxation practices to what I later came across as something a lot more formal and from what now I recognize from particular lineages. And then from that, uh, as I'm sure quite a few percentage of your listeners, Vincent, spent some time in India and um, came to a yoga class and then realized that, because I didn't know anything about yoga at that stage, realized that yoga was, as I experienced it in any way, was physical movement with meditation and, uh, you know, depending on the teacher, of course, uh, a combination of, the, of these two practices um, or approaches. So from that point, then I have, yeah, continued that investigation and it's been a real hobby and passion of mine over the last 20 years to experiment with the different styles of meditation from different lineages, from different teachings and teachers to, yeah, just to experiment with the different styles of meditation and the intention behind those practices and the effect of those practices. So I'm still very much continuing on that journey. Mm. How, how, so how has it changed your life? Because you obviously started as a teenager and got more involved over the years with it and formally were, was for the lack of the better term, indoctrinated into the practice. Uh, so how has it changed, you know, from teenager to, you know, young adult to now where you are in your life? How has things evolved and how has it progressed you in terms of your understanding and also where that you view life? Well, it's it's really changed my life in, in, all, in every way and in all different um, facets of my life. So, you know, talk a little bit about some of those. I guess when you asked me that question, the first thing that came to mind was it's changed my life in terms of the, the community and the people that I hang out with and am drawn towards uh, being with. And in, in meditation and, and, of course, in yoga circles as well, we have, you know, we talk of a sangha, which is a, is a community, a community of people doing like-minded practices or maybe someone might define it as a spiritual community. But, you know, when I grew up in Sydney, I was very much in the party scene and a very social, um, business-minded, professional people sort of in a very different, um, yeah, in a very different part of the community that I now find myself in, having explored meditation and being interested in learning from from different teachers and traveling and using meditation as a guide uh, in terms of um, 
meeting people and being part of community. So I'm very grateful for that. And I, and I think, you know, yoga and meditation, that's one of the great gifts that people get from um, from doing those practices as, as it's part of a community of, of like-minded people. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned um, lineages. What I mean, because I remember a few years ago you taking me through an Osho meditation. Yeah. So I was just just to inform the listeners what what lineages you've been through or have been shaped by, uh, and and then what are the main elements that you now draw upon? And obviously it's a it's potentially a fusion of many different things. But what are the main key components if you can strip it down to what you teach now in meditation? Yeah. Well, I think you know since. I have practiced lots of different styles of meditation. I think I think you're exactly right that, you know, we dip into different uh, lineages and different practices. And what I'm always encouraging um, friends and people to, that I have these conversations to be aware of is, you know, well, why am I practicing what I'm practicing? And the different um, schools of meditation and different traditions have completely different intentions around practicing meditation and as I referred to before that's always been a real interest of mine to sort of have that little um, exploration and little just dip my foot in the water and see oh what's going on here and and that and that the reason um, or my intention for practicing meditation has changed a lot over the years so you, you refer to to Osho Osho is an, or was he? Um, he's not alive anymore. But he was a contemporary meditation teacher from Pune on the west of India, and yeah, spent maybe five or six, um, five or six different holidays staying at uh, at Osho's ashram, and he is a wonderful teacher. I really highly recommend it. Um, anyone interested to um, find some of Osho's discourses, and he's got hundreds of books that he's written. And what what quite, re- quite a con- what, quite a controversial figure in, in terms of his teaching, but as a person as well, yeah. Well, no, I don't agree. I think he's only controversial to people who don't know anything about him. I think he, the way he is presented has been presented in the media and, um, yeah, by by people who haven't been to his, um, been involved with Osho or practiced his meditation or read any of his books, I think he, he's actually not controversial at all. He's one of the wisest men who, who's ever lived on this earth, which is saying, which is saying a lot, but he, um, he, he was a, what you could describe as a revolutionary, if that's not a, a little bit too dramatic, because he, his his aim or his intention was to shake people up, to shake people out of their conditioning, out of their handed down beliefs, out of their all of the stuff that we think. Okay, this is Susan. This is the list of what I am, who I am, my beliefs, my likes, my dislikes, my schooling, my history. He he would challenge people to um, to look beyond that and to through his meditation strategies to let go of that, 
to open into maybe a person who could um, flourish and fulfill a potential that wasn't limited by all of those factors. So he he really did challenge people because, you know, we all hold ourselves quite seriously sometimes, the what, how we regard ourselves and um, our views and opinions, how much we hold on to those. And, uh, and Osho didn't have any time for that. And he had lots of humour that he would uh, push people's buttons with just to, you know, as a strategy to force them to look at themselves and how, you know, they're, how they're holding on particularly tightly to those views and opinions. So people who were sensitive um, didn't like that. And particularly he challenged people around religion and beliefs that people had been handed from their parents or from their um, you know, their, their communities. So, yeah, he was controversial if you were slightly sensitive to, 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 <laughs> to being challenged in that way. Now, I remember you pointed me to a teacher a couple of years ago to, uh, uh, I think it was a circular Buddhist, uh, Stephen Batchelor. Are you still involved in some of his teachings still today? Because I know you have travel to see his discourses is that right or some of his trainings yeah yeah that is right I've been on retreat with Stephen and his he teaches uh, Stephen's British and he teaches with his wife Martine Batchelor so I have been on retreat with them and Stephen remains one of my um, primary teachers in terms of remotely following his um his discourses mainly that that he um, that he has online, and he's a marvelous writer as well. His history, Stephen, is he lived for I think about 12 years as a um, a Tibetan Buddhist, and then as a Zen Buddhist monk. So you know, a monk wearing robes, renouncing um, worldly possessions, and living very much in as a um, as a monk in a, mon- in a monastery in Asia. And he, his particular talent, Stephen, is he is an academic and a translator. So Stephen, um, particularly after living as a Tibetan Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhism is a, a very heavily cultural flavor of Buddhism where there's lots of ritual and um, and cultural influences. So Stephen was translating for, um, I, I believe, in the for the Dalai Lama and his sort of circle he was involved. Stephen was translating the ancient Pali Canon, which is the the, the ancient Buddhist scriptures that. Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, was, um, you know, his discourses that he gave when he was alive. These are, this is called the Pali Canon. So Stephen was translating these documents for, for many years. And from that, he, his journey was, he saw that it was necessary for him anyway to strip back all of the cultural flavorings and additions that he had studied as a a Tibetan Buddhist to strip all of that away to what was more 
the raw and the actual message of of the Buddha two and a half thousand years ago, and and being a being a, a translator and an academic, Stephen has a really marvelous ability to pull apart words and the meaning of words to try to get to the message that's underneath or the you know the raw simple message as opposed to the interpreted message that has you know flowed down to us as buddhism has moved through you know two and a half thousand years of people and teachers and cultures and countries so yeah so i've been following stephen for many years and very much appreciate this uh yeah, I guess this attention to detail and particularly the stripping away of all of the, yeah, the cultural influences and the the dogma that sort of um, maybe has arisen um, or been added to the, the original message of, of Buddhism. Yeah, so, so what... what elements do you now emphasize most you, you said exploration i just like to kind of dissect that a little bit more what what are you particularly di- exploring and is there a structure to this exploration or is it just something that when you come into and experience a particular phenomenon or stimulus that you have a uh, uh, not so much of a more of a nebulous or abstract relationship to it, or is there something that you actually are quite specific with? In terms of the meditation practice I'm doing today? Yes, or the meditation practices you're teaching. Yeah, so um, so over the years, my main two teachers have been Osho and then Stephen Batchelor, and then for the last four years, I've been studying with a Tibetan Buddhist teacher called Daniel Brown, and the specific meditation technique I'm practicing is called Mahamudra. And this has two components. And the first component um, is primarily what I'm teaching. And the second component I don't teach in to, to the to a, a require to a specific depth because I feel that uh, yeah I'm not quite it's a ve- I feel it's a very advanced practice that I need to develop myself before I can share this sure. with others. So Mahamudra, so, mm. Mahamudra is a great seal. Yeah, so there's there's two parts to the the practice, and this is really how I see meditation laid out across all traditions is. The two categories of practice are concentration practices, firstly, and secondly, insight practices or mm-hmm. inquiry practices. So Mahamudra, the great seal, this is more of an insight practice or an inquiry practice, which I'll perhaps explain in a little bit. And then preliminary to that is a concentration practice, which gives you the stability of mind to then be able to do an insight or an inquiry practice. So the across most traditions, as I have I've experienced, mo, the starting point is often a concentration practice where there's a specific 
anchoring of the mind, a specific focal point that the mind is directed to, and through that cultivating of that stability of mind, then mostly the the goal is to minimize the habit, the default habit we have of chasing after thought. So the tradition that I'm practicing with um, Dan Brown is called, is called the pointing out tradition, as I said, a Tibetan Buddhist practice. And it stands quite a few meters above other concentration practices that I've learned before because it really encourages, through specific techniques, a real determination and a discipline and a progression in the concentration practices. And what I see now that I've been doing for many years, and I also, through talking to others who are practicing concentration practices, who, which we might also call mindfulness practices, such as mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of body sensations or repetition of a mantra, all of these things, an anchor or a focal point for the mind, that unless there's really clear metacognition around what you're doing in the practice, that it's very easy to just continue for years and years with quite poor habits in terms of the concentration improving and being able to move to that state where the mind is really with very little thought and where the habit of chasing after thought is really, um, yeah, you're really able to cultivate that, that state of being. So you mentioned, you mentioned um, quite interesting words, discipline and determination. And these are effort bound relationships, um, which is to me, I think uh, something that all practices do require, but in, in, in the light of, you know, if you like, sunshine yoga, where the discipline and the determination and the, the requirement of stability within a certain associated practice seems to be lessened a little bit more in some of the practice that I've seen of late. And I'm glad that you're using these words, discipline and determination, because, you know, to achieve this idea of freedom or the idea of moksha, um, that comes with a, a certain uh, responsibility or a certain degree of cultivation of effort and a cultivation of um, discipline, if you like. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%, Vincent, I would. And I... A lot, of, a lot of teachers that I've had before and approaches around meditation encourage what I now see as quite the opposite, that, you know, oh, the mind is wandering, oh, don't worry, just relax, just watch the thoughts come and go, bring the mind back gently, sit with just whatever is happening. And that sort of approach, I think, in my experience and working with people, it doesn't provide the result, which is really uh, what we're looking for is to train the mind and to bring stability to the mind, which for most people, the mind is very easily distracted, very unruly and, you know, all over the place. And, mm. and this is why 
when a lot of people come to meditation, their first um, their first explorations with the practice, they often might comment, oh, my God, my mind is so busy, I can't possibly do this practice, it's not for me. And I think what has been missing a lot in um, how meditation is presented is that meditation is an attention training and you really need to step up to that practice to create a different habit or a different pattern for the mind. And, of course, our default is mind-wandering. And, Mm. you know, all of us have this experience. And to turn the tide on that, you know, a real enthusiastic perseverance is required and one that we we bring effort and we bring motivation um, that comes from our own personal vision around why we're practicing and and why we're putting aside time in our busy day to sit down and and to do this practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I like like those ideas and, and those words. And is it with the development of greater levels of attention, there's obviously also a cultivation of greater degree of observation of the rhythms of one's thoughts and the habituations within those rhythms. Um, is it something that meditation endeavors also to do to improve our observational relationships with ourselves as much as obviously uh, what's outside of ourselves? Well, it, it very much depends on what type of meditation you're practicing and what the goal of that meditation style is because there there are meditations that um, for example that have might have the exploration or the the intentional goal of being observant to how we tend to be reactive and reactive and whatever situations and then you know from that arising of emotion, how we then tend to amplify or not amplify or get stuck in a story. And so there are types of meditations where that is the the reason for practice. The the type of meditation, the Mahamudra, is similar to what you said, but done in a different way or from a different approach. The first part being the concentration practice where – through and maybe it's just something that I'd like to add to that previous discussion around determination and effort. What is essential is that there the practitioner has a clear understanding on what the techniques are to bring that effort and to bring that determination. It's not just, oh yes, I want to be determined, but there's specific techniques around how to develop that determination and how to develop the, if we call it effort or the ability to apply a sustained attention. So it's not just sort of something waffly or willful, but there's there's specific techniques around how to do that. And uh, if we we have learned good techniques, then we'll progress in the practice. If we don't learn, you know – techniques that are tried and tested and you know in Buddhism there's lineage practices that they say are you know many thousands of years old have been developed and refined by teacher to student and refined by teacher to student to teacher Mm -hmm. to student over many years so there and I think that is one of the advantages of 
lineage practices as opposed to maybe what we could call the more contemporary mindfulness movement that mm. maybe doesn't have the benefit of some of that ancient wisdom that can really help to support the practice and to be able to refine and to pro progress in the practice because, you know, that, that's really what it's all about if we're putting that time in um, and, and, you know, making that a priority for ourselves. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a great advocate around uh, technique, if you like, uh, from the perspective that the technique itself also is something that's progressive. So there's a constant refinement of our approach to the technique or how we utilize that technique before it can become a tool that we can utilize also to enhance our understanding. So uh, some of the information that I, I generally provide are technical in their uh, determinations but at the end of the day it's the relationship that person has with that technicality as well so there is this foundational period that you have to go through before we can start to utilize these tools in ways that I think can um, elaborate on these practices more deeply and with a greater nuance and subtlety and so would you would you adhere to that idea as well that you know even though we can provide techniques sometimes it's the students relationship to it and some of the hindrances that they bring with it that sometimes can make this an accessible process for them or something they have to work through in time yeah yeah no i'd completely agree with that and one of the ideas that was presented to me in, in a way that i really clearly understood by my teacher dan was that there's a part of the brain that's responsible for metacognition. Um, to be specific, the, the right dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. And this Love part it. of the brain... <laughs> <laughs> this part of the brain um, is responsible for metacognition, which is like a governing awareness around what we're doing, and particularly in relation to meditation, around the strategies that we're using and if the strategies are helpful for us or not. Mm. So a simple example might be if I'm practicing meditation and I'm quite sleepy or drowsy, then if we have good metacognition, we would see that quite clearly that the reason my concentration or my application in the meditation is quite poor today is because I'm tired and so then what tools can I draw on to brighten the mind and to shake off that feeling of you know a foggy mind or a drowsy mind and so mm. then when we have that metacognition then we can apply a specific um, technique or remedy or strategy around what's happening and then we can you know uh, practice in a way that we're not feeling drowsy. Whereas yes. if we have if we have poor metacognition, then what people tend to do is they just keep, tend to doing the same thing because mm. there's no awareness around um, what's happening and therefore how to correct it and uh, to you know creatively engage with that. 
That's great because that works beautifully with it's kind of therapeutic in its nature, isn't it? It's looking at the yeah. moment, what's what's required in that moment, because every moment is different, or every meditation sitting is different, or every yoga practice is different. And then having these sets of tools available to you and applying them at certain times, and and then not applying them at other times because they're not required. So it requires a, a level of attention or expansive attention, as you've been mentioning to be able to do that. And I think that's that's a really worthwhile skill to develop in students. And it's kind of like developing a level of ownership and self-responsibility as well. Exactly. And and I like that word responsibility in a really positive sense rather than often when we hear responsibility, it sort of sounds like something quite burdenous or heavy. Yeah, but, of yeah. course, when we have responsibility for what we're doing, then – we really are in control, you know, and that we are we are able to move in whatever direction we want and to be responsive and responsible, you know, is from the same root. So it gives us, you know, within that there's there's a freedom that comes from that responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And now if I was a beginner, where would I want to start with first in terms of this is the first time I've gone going into meditation? What would be some of the advice that you would give or suggest? The advice would be to seek out a, a good teacher because meditation is – so in Tibet, in Tibet, there were – for many centuries, Buddhism was taught um, – sorry, meditation was taught on a one-to-one -one level. And then – at some stage, and apologies, I'm not sure exactly which century this happened, but meditation became more institutionalized and it started to be taught in, in monasteries where there was one teacher and many students. And it was no coincidence that around that time, there also started to um, be written many books around the obstacles of meditation and the difficulties that... Um, people practicing meditation come up against. And what the problem was, was that the one-to-one -one relationship or at least having access to a teacher, the, te the role of the teacher is to be able to see what the student is doing and to be able to bring their awareness to or to point out what is happening and then be able to advise them on a, on a correction or how to, um, yeah, where to take the practice to. And, and as you know, yoga in India for most of its life was, was, the, same, um, was the same approach or the same setting. It was teacher-student as opposed to how, we're now, how it's now taught in the West, big classes with one teacher. Mm, so so com commercialization started quite early then. <laughs> yeah, I pack them all in. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, seek out a good teacher. Would you recommend? I mean, we've spoken obviously Osho and Stephen Batchelor. Would you recommend any any readings or uh, you know teachers that you know of? Contemporary teachers now, obviously, uh, you've mentioned your current teacher, but say these people are not accessible, where where would you lead them to? That is, uh, if you like, uh, a safe, if, if not um, a good starting point. 
Well, Stephen Batchelor does have lots of online resources, and his Stephen is more the sort of the philosophy teacher, and his wife Martine is the meditation teacher, and they they do have lots of online resources, and I think that、mm. would be a really good starting point. There, there's many. Books that I could recommend about meditation, but I, I don't think that's a useful way to start. I think it's to have an interactive process with、um, with a group, and、mm-hmm. you know, perhaps if somebody wanted to go to physically to see someone, then I always recommend a, a Buddhist school of meditation because the practice from the Buddhist schools. Generally, seem to be very structured, and、mm. there's less dogma and、um, the the more the ritual style of meditations. I've never I haven't found that useful for myself. Although, of course, many many people do enjoy things like、um, reciting mantra, and I guess probably a simple starting point would be to if you're seeking out a teacher. To ask them the question, what am I practicing and why, and and to really be happy with the answer that you get, that it's you know that the why is something that resonates with you. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. What am I practicing and why? That's that question is not answered、uh, or given enough really to to teachers in in the yoga community as much as to meditation teachers as well. Um, yeah, and there has to be a really nice conversation around that because I think there is a can lead to a lot of delusion、um, over over a number of years after you've been practicing, and you come up against these questions again, and again you find yourself at square one. Yeah, and it's and it's 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 sad when somebody is you know dedicated and spending time for the practice and making time and.、Um, Genuinely interested, but having not considered the why, they're sort of yeah, but sort of out there floating in the ocean with nothing to anchor them. And the practice, the yoga and the meditation practice, have so much to offer that we want to make sure our practice has has a clear direction,、um, mm. because obviously then that's where we're heading. We want to know no, where we're heading or be able yeah, to then, have some part in that. That's right, and and the clear direction in, in my mind can't be too nebulous. It can't exactly. be exactly. There has to be something that's accessible and and relevant in the moment that we can access, you know, with a bit of time and effort and skill. Yeah. So, but I, I sometimes I feel the the practices that are now spoken about or or taught. Have these very idealistic claims to them that I feel、uh, does a disservice to the student because it doesn't anchor them into the moment. It's always this level of transcendence be- over and beyond this moment, and where everything is about connecting to the experience and the phenomenon that we're having and dissecting that phenomenon in this in, in that moment. Yeah.、Uh, so th- this is this is my thinking from from you know, from a general perspective around this, you know, freedom practices that we are all involved in. Yeah, and I think、um, the practice has a paradox to it. Like we're doing, you know, I'm dedicating this time every day for my yoga and my meditation practice, and you know, if I'm really honest. 
you know, I'm doing it because I want to change in a certain way. And I, mm. you know, so there is some goal orientated nature to it. Um, otherwise, you know, I, why not just go up skiing the whole afternoon? That's, you know, probably a little bit more fun or a little bit yeah. more social. So, True. so it does have this goal um, nature to it, but the paradox is that the practice is about being present. You know, that's the, that's the practice in its summary in the nutshell is about what's happening here and now. And, and it's interesting in the practice exploring this paradox and, mm. and through an experiential understanding um, that they can both, you know, exist together and actually not contradict each other. Mm. So the exploring is done with, a, a certain, with certain guidelines rather than yeah. just exploring for the sake of exploring. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's brilliant. Yeah, it's great. And now, Susan, just quickly, you know, love talking to you a little bit more, but we're running out of time. So just really curious to know where, you know, listeners can find you, um, website and all that kind of stuff would be great, and whether you're holding any retreats or trainings around this. Um, yeah, just please share. Well, so I'm living down here in Wanaka, as I said, in South Island, New Zealand. And my website is yogagroundwanaka.nz. So Wanaka is spelled W-A-N-A-K-A. And, yeah, I hold, hold retreats, which I have one coming up soon in the Coromandel that Vincent and I used to do together for many years. And we miss okay. you, Vincent. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And um, probably like um, many te- yoga teachers with the goings-on of the last uh, few months in 2020, we, uh, I've been putting together an online platform and this is just in its early stages and will probably be finished towards the end of the year. And it, it will have a meditation component, the primary um, – purpose of the platform is mentoring teachers who are already teaching and helping them um, both in a group setting and on a one-to-one setting to refine their ability to communicate what they know in their own practice into a class setting, both in asana and meditation practices. Mm-hmm. So in addition to that, there will be some meditation um, practices um, online because I feel that this is a bit of a a gap for many yoga teachers who are primarily teaching asana classes and primarily practicing asana. And to see asana as one of the limbs of the eight limbs of yoga, of course, which meditation is another one of the limbs. So to be, so part of the offerings on their online platform will be to upskill in the meditation limb to be able to bring some of that into their offerings in the, you know, the daily asana class. Great. Thank you, Susan. That's awesome. So do check out Susan Allen guys on online. Um, I'd like to thank you very much, Susan, for joining me today. Meta can't be here today, so uh, sending my blessings out to Meta. Uh, but it's been great talking to you, so thank you very much. 
Thanks for having me, Vincent. Lovely to oh. uh, be waving at you down over the South, South Island. Yeah, that's right. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Check out the next podcast, uh, Answer Conversations. We'll be back soon. Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to Hansa Conversations, a podcast. Please follow Hansa Yoga on Instagram and Facebook. Learn more about Hansa at hansa.yoga on the web, where you can also purchase online practice videos to practice at home. Don't forget to sign up to our mailing list to get updates on our latest news. So join us on the next Hansa Conversations, and thank you for listening.